Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host Jack Perks and this week I've got Fiona McKenna on of the British Dragonfly Society and we're going to be talking all about deer. No, we're not. We're going to be talking about dragonflies, of course, so I can't wait to do that. Uh, But first, here's the news. Now, there's been a boom in fishing during lockdown as rod licence sales soar more than 230% in two months, the Environment Agency says. That's 200,000 more people are angling compared to last year. Now, they believe the rise is due to existing anglers embracing the opportunity to start fishing again, together with those taking up the sport for the first time, or returning to the sport after a long absence, prompted by the pursuit of new hobbies during lockdown. Fishing licence income is vital to the work of the Environment Agency to maintain, improve and develop fisheries. Revenue generated from fishing licence sales is reinvested to benefit angling, with work including tackling illegal fishing, protecting habitats for fish and improving facilities for anglers. So all that extra money goes back into helping fish refuges, improving spawning habitat. So it's a big boost for our rivers. So something good to come out of lockdown for a change. But on to my guest this week. So Fiona McKenna, as I said, I've known her for for a while now, for a few years. We, we first worked together um, at the Lincolnshire Rivers Trust and more, uh, well, I say more recently, she's been there a while now, but at the British Dragonfly Society, and she's going to tell me a little bit more about Britain's dragonflies. Well, thanks for joining me, Fiona. Oh, no, thank you for inviting me. Are you, are you still in Lincoln? Yes, yeah, in Lincoln City. Uh, okay, because we met via the, the Lincolnshire Rivers Trust, didn't we, which was a few years ago now, but that, that must have been a, a great job to do. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, it was one of my first proper paid jobs in conservation, uh, sort of paid full-time extended contract role. And I was their very first officer as well. So it was a real honour to be their first member of staff and get everything off the ground for them. Yeah, you did quite, you did, yeah, quite heavily involved with them really, weren't you? Yeah, it was a, a good few years I was there. Um, as they sort of started off the, their main projects really as they didn't have a member of staff before I was on board so they'd done a few things um, but obviously were limited without having a full-time member of staff um, and we did the catchment based approach partnership uh, we led on that for the Witham catchment in Lincolnshire uh, which actually takes up most of Lincolnshire um, as you found out when we were doing the film <laughs> yeah yeah I did, did rocked up some miles on my car yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, it was a pretty vast area to cover, but yeah, really interesting and interesting projects as well and species that I got to work with. And you now, of course, you work for a different NGO now, don't you? Yeah, so that was a couple of jobs ago. So I worked for Keep Britain Tidy in between, um, and now I've gone over to British Dragonfly Society. So I feel like I've come back to species conservation a bit more, which is my true passion. (laughs) Eight litter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not it's not the most uh, exciting thing to talk about, I guess, is it? But important. No. <laughs> so I guess why should people care about dragonflies and damselflies then? Ah, because they're super cool. They're just <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I, I just think if people don't care about them, it's purely because they don't know about them. <laughs> That's the conclusion I've come to. Because once you know how amazing they are, you can't not care about them unless you know you just switched off on the natural world altogether 
children get it instantly they they just understand how amazing they are you, you you take a child pond dipping and they just get it kind of instantaneously they gaze into that pond you show them what's beneath that surface you get a net in there and you get a little dragonfly larvae out that looks like an alien and it shoots that jaw out to grab its prey and it just captures their imagination they just they get it they just understand how amazing these little insects are um, and even adults when I talk to them at events um, we've done events like in the middle of London with the Ministry of Justice and you chat to people on their lunch break and some of them are kind of like oh no that's disgusting I don't want to see that it's a horrible insect because they've probably been conditioned to think like that about insects sadly um, but then you tell them a little bit about them and you tell them that they're an aquatic insect and instantly they didn't know that it's interesting they want to know more and then you tell them that insect you see flying around in the summer that's the very last stage of that insect's life cycle and it only lives like that for you know, a matter of weeks a couple of months at the most and they're really an aquatic insect for the majority of their life and they can tell us so much about the health of the environment they can eat mosquitoes and midges and things that people don't tend to like that bite us and carry diseases so they they're really functional for us as humans as well and then my favorite fact that they've been around for over 350 million years so before the dinosaurs are even here so if people don't find that fascinating then i don't know what more they want from an invertebrate really because <laughs> they've got it all i was going to ask you what your favorite fact is so you've beat me to the punchline on that one but <laughs> my my favorite well i think this is right but my favorite fact is that they were the inspiration for the alien in the alien films yes. i think that's right isn't it with the because the yeah. you know ridley scott's alien is that has like the second jaw that shoots out and that and H H G guy, I think he was the one who came up with the design, got yeah. that from dragonfly larvae because they've got the little uh, is it a mandible? What's the I don't know what the correct term is. What's the bit that shoots out? Is that a mandible or? Um, yeah, it's actually part of like the jaw. Is it okay? It's like having an arm underneath your chin. Really, that's the only way I can describe it. So it's kind of it would be like if you had an arm that sat under your chin and then it can extend out and it's got this little toothed mask thing on it as well. So yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> they are awesome, definitely. Sorry, no, I was going to say it's called a labial mask is its correct term because it is, it kind of sits like a mask almost. Oh, uh, okay. Now what, what amazes me is how many uh, adults are frightened of them, which is, I mean, I guess they're a big buzzing thing, which if you, you know, if you don't know, that might scare you a little bit, but like they don't sting. A common misconception is that dragonflies sting. Well, obviously they don't, they don't yeah. have a stinger and, and they don't really, they'd never bite. I mean, I suppose they could bite you, but. They're not they going to come at you. Bite. Yeah, you'd have to really annoy them and like stick your finger in their mouth, I think, to get them to bite you. Yeah. <laughs> I've, never, I've never heard of a dragonfly going up to somebody and biting them. So, I mean, they, they eat insects, so an invertebrate predator, um, and they'll eat things on the wing. So, it's you know, they're very unlikely to mistake a, a massive human for a, a little invertebrate flying around. <laughs> <laughs> they have a very very bad eyesight to do that yeah and they've got super eyesight as we know so it's like they're, they're not going to make a mistake like that are they they're just yeah fantastically adapted for what they do and as i say i think if you if you grabbed one and really annoyed it it might try and bite you in self-defense but i just can't imagine why else they would ever bite somebody but we think that some of those legends of uh, them being a stinger actually come from um, North America. They know them as horse stingers. And I think they might even have called them that here many years ago. 
uh, because they see them buzzing around horses in fields and then the horse would flap its tail as if it was being annoyed and they maybe thought they were stinging them. Um, but in reality, the horse was probably being bitten by flies or mosquitoes or midges and the dragonfly was just going around and hoovering up those insects. So um, they got <laughs> So I think that's where the name horse singer came from. Okay, that makes sense. And yeah, I'd, I'd much rather have a dragonfly near me than a horsefly because they are just crazy. Exactly. <laughs> so for many people who don't know how to tell them apart, how do you tell a, a dragonfly from a damselfly? I know there's, there's loads of species and it's not a, a set in stone rule, but if people want to generally know how to tell the difference, how do they do that? So there's two really simple ways. So if you look at dragonflies and damselflies when they're at rest, so if they come and perch on something, um, the dragonfly will sit like an aeroplane, so it'll have its wings straight out by its side, and it can't actually fold them back. It would break them if it tried to do that. Uh, whereas the damselfly sits with them sort of folded down by its side. Um, so that's a really nice, easy way. So I always think of you know, dragonflies, aeroplanes, damselflies, um, a little boy at an event said they look like a colourful pencil when they're sitting down. <laughs> so I always remember it that way. <laughs> they're like a little slim pencil with them by their side. <laughs> um, but also the eyes are another key thing. Um, so dragonflies have these sort of massive wraparound eyes that look like they meet right in the middle. Um, and that's true for nearly all of them. There's only a few exceptions. Um, and then the damselflies are almost like little hammerhead sharks. They have them a little bit on stalks on the edge of their head. So that's another way of, of remembering the difference. And then generally size is a bit different. Um, so dragonflies tend to be a bit bigger and bulkier um, and damselflies are a bit daintier and they kind of float along like little floating matchsticks, whereas dragonflies fly with a bit more purpose. So there's a, a few little ways of remembering them there, but I say the, the wings are quite a good one to remember. I'd never thought about that with the damselflies head like a little hammerhead shark, but now when you say that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking of all the damselflies I've seen and they're nearly all like that so that's, that's yeah. really that way of, of pointing it out and i you know see some lovely photos as well of them sort of head on with like a blade of grass or something and you see their eyes either side yes. so with the dragonfly you would just sort of get the edges but with the, the little hammerhead damselfly you can see both eye quite clearly either side because i've been caught out in the past with i think it might be willow and emerald damselflies they have their wings open slightly don't they yeah, so, so there's always one, isn't there? That has to be <laughs> and there's, there's the, um, the common emeralds and there's also the willow emeralds and they do sit with them at a, like a 45 degree angle. So they're, they're a little bit in between, but they've still got the eyes out on stalks um, and they're just a lot daintier. So you can tell they're a damselfly by those other points. But yeah, there's always one that has to try and be difficult. And <laughs> can't <take one> out. <laughs> Can't just be spread yeah. wings um, in America uh, because of the way they they hold their wings like that, which I think is quite nice. But some people don't like the terminology they use. <laughs> <laughs> and and how many species uh, do we have in the UK? I should say. I mean, in the world, I imagine there's hundreds, but in, in the UK, how yeah, many? there's getting on for six thousand in the world. Um, wow. which is huge when you think compared to beetles and things like that. You know, there's obviously thousands of them. Um, so they are quite a manageable group, but we've got, I think it's around 48 now, including um, some of the migrant species. It keeps fluctuating a little bit as we keep getting different species kind of extending their range due to climate change. Um, like Willow Emerald that you mentioned earlier, um, they're quite a recent colonist. Um, they came across sort of under their own steam in, I think it was uh, 2007, so it wasn't that long ago. 
um, and they were just found in one place, I think it was Felixstowe in Suffolk, um, and we think we can trace it for um, when they came across because there was a, a like high winds and storms and they brought across the, I think it's the um, midges or the gnats that brought across the blue tongue disease in that year. Um, and we think the willow emeralds came across in that same weather event. Um, so we can be almost certain about when they came and where they came. Um, and then we've got a few volunteers who've been tracking them ever since then. So we've got Willow Emerald Watch um, on our website. You can look at the maps from around 2007 onwards and see how they've spread out across the country. And they are up in Lincolnshire and Yorkshire now, so they've spread quite far north. And then I think uh, somewhere like Buckinghamshire might be the furthest west, um, or they might have gone a bit further than that now, actually. Um, so yeah, they really, really like it here, <laughs> really doing well. <laughs> so they're they're a winner. <laughs> and with these species, so you 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 wouldn't class these as as non-native. They're just a natural migrant. It's the sort of way you'd look at it. Is yeah, it? yeah, natural colonists. So they they've come across sort of under their own steam with a little bit of help from a bad weather incident. Um, so just like butterflies can migrate and sort of use the winds to to carry them a bit further, they they've just done that. Um, and either accidentally ended up somewhere that they like um, and then they've just colonized it and yeah they seem to be loving it here. <laughs> are there are there any other species that I guess with the onset of global warming that you would expect to be in the UK in say the next 10-15 years so for example I went to Hungary a couple of years ago predominantly for butterflies but we saw um, oh is it scarlet darter is that what they're called and they're yeah. there are really vivid dragonflies like wow like you can't miss it i mean i don't know if anything like that would turn up but like is there something like i wouldn't be surprised if these colonize the uk uh, sooner rather than later i mean we've had a few like um southern migrant hawkers are turning up more readily and i don't think there's been records of record i mean don't quote me on it as the migrant project isn't my thing um but i think i don't think they've been recorded as breeding here yet um but yeah there's there's certainly more variety of things coming over um so i wouldn't be surprised if, if more did find it suitable here but obviously there's the kind of the flip side of that is that some of our more northerly species are going to be really struggling um if we do get this influx of, of new species coming in um, than anything that's kind of a specialist to this country or particularly Scotland and places like that. They don't have anywhere further north to go. <laughs> There's quite a big expanse of, of water between them and the next bit of land. So they, they just would, you know, die out eventually. So, yeah, it's just, it's so important to keep an eye on where things are, numbers of things and just recording really. And that data is, is so vital to help us know what is going on with them. And they, they are used as a bit of an indicator um, as to what's happening in regards to things like climate change as well. Because there's, there's a few in Scotland, isn't there, of sort of, um, I don't know if they're endemic, but like you only really find them in the Highlands. So is, is it black face yeah. dart or something like that? Um, there's, so the, the Northern Emerald um, yeah. is one that you only get in Scotland. Um, uh, there's white face darts, but they're not only in Scotland, they okay. are in pockets of England um, and Wales as well um, but yeah I mean we have got Scotland officers who, who work on things like the Northern uh, Damselfly project as well that's another one that's only in Scotland or sort of very near to the borders as well um, so yeah there's a couple of specialist species um, it'd probably be worth you chatting with them as a follow-up actually about those those projects if anyone wants to find out more about them 
Um, but yeah, if, if they go, then it's like they're not found anywhere else. They couldn't live further south because they're only adapted to living, you know, in the in the most northerly kinds of our country. So yeah, they they wouldn't be doing very well at all if if they got pushed out by another species. No, I think I think I have seen northern damsels actually because I went to the Cairngorms, um few years ago and i was there in around july august and i thought i'm going to specifically go try and find one of these why because i normally go in the winter but i was there in the summer for this time but i'm going and i found one and they're they're not the most remarkable it's very unfair thing to say they're not the most remarkable looking dragonfly but about what where they live and how they live was interesting and that's why i thought okay i'll go see one so i did i did find some but yeah they are they are pretty interesting and rare ones isn't it is that they're not always the most colorful or the showy or kind of the ones that come and see people regularly they, they can be a bit more shy and so they get overlooked or under recorded as well so they're almost our own worst enemy in some way <laughs> yeah and, and yeah like you say it's weird how that happens with so many you know things that say like the nightingale you know kind of a little brown jobby of a bird but now yeah it's pretty pretty rare or like some of the fish that i've worked with like the the vendace is just a little silvery looking nothing spectacular but it's incredibly rare so yeah it seems to be a common trait i never really noticed that before but yeah that is true yeah yeah commonly overlooked probably as well as being rare <laughs> yeah definitely i think i saw on your twitter that you've done a pond recently is that right yes i have yeah i did a lockdown pond i was <laughs> one of the lockdown project people <laughs> yeah no i think i i suspect the, the number of ponds will have increased dramatically from march to like early early may so i hope so <laughs> if yeah definitely if someone has a garden pond and they want to encourage dragonflies and damselflies, what can they do to specifically kind of help them live in their ponds or encourage them to their ponds? So something I didn't do that I'll hold my hands up to um, is that you should really only use rainwater. Um, as we've heard from so many of the experts that it's the best thing for wildlife. Um, there are a lot of chemicals in tap water, obviously, to make it safe for us as humans to drink and use. Um, and they can take a long time to dissipate, even if you sort of leave them to evaporate. It, I've read that chlorine and things like that um, can take... I don't know, maybe months and even a year to evaporate off properly. Um, and I have noticed my pond, as I did the no-no, I filled it with tap water. <laughs> it had been very dry. So I'm in the east of England and we are technically a drought zone. And we don't get a lot of rainfall throughout the year. Um, and it had been very, very dry. It was one of the driest springs on record, I think we'd had, and one of the hottest Mays, I think. And my water butt was empty, and it was only a very small one anyway. <laughs> and I dug quite a big pond. So I was in a bit of a dilemma, as I wanted to get that liner in, and I didn't want birds or cats or anything coming in and, and ripping it. So I just wanted to get some water in it to protect it. So I just posed pipe in and did it. <laughs> Probably should have waited and you know, put more water butts in or planned it better. But the habitat's there. Wildlife are coming to use it. Birds are drinking from it. I've put lots of oxygenating plants in. Um, so I have done some things right. So I've introduced some native plants in there. I've got hornwort, which is a really good oxygenator. Um, and things like uh, dragonfly larvae, any fly larvae, any invertebrates will be able to hide in that. Frogs and things like that will be able to hide in it as well. And it's a really good oxy oxygenator, so great for the water quality, hopefully. <laughs> and it will hopefully fix some of those excess nutrients I've got in there. And then I've got a few more things on order, um, like frogbit, which is a little floating plant, uh, which I think is another native one. Um, and it has little flowers, so it's meant to like a little mini water lily. Um, so that'll be good for 
creating a bit of shade as well as you you don't just want open water you want a nice variety of different habitats within your pond um, and something I did take a bit of time over was measuring my pond out and making sure I had the right levels in there is that's it's all about creating different niches for all the different species that you want to attract so I've gone for a nice bit of deep water in the middle that's about 70 centimeters deep so I'm hoping that will be deep enough for amphibians to go to the bottom and, and hibernate over winter and, and not be too affected by temperature changes um, and should stop it freezing over totally as well and then I've got some nice kind of shallower shelves so it comes sort of up from the deep bit and then there's a nice little beach at the edge and then a deeper bit at the other end um, so I've tried to go for lots of variety of depths and little shelves to put my plants on as well so I would just say whatever size space you've got work with what you've got um, and work with the shaped area you've got and what works for your garden um, but just get that variety in there get a nice deeper bit in the middle so if you're going for you know wildlife pond you your top things you're going to attract are probably going to be amphibians and then invertebrates and then birds and mammals will hopefully use it to drink from and bathe in too um, so just think about all those different uses i would say um, as obviously that's not specifically dragonfly related but it will benefit dragonflies but why not make it benefit as many species as possible while you're there um, and a top tip for plants as well try and get ones that not only oxygenate and you know do lots of good things under the water and um, but get lots of nice marginals and emergents that have also got flowers so they're good for pollinators as well so you kind of you know you're getting more bang for your buck to use a, an overused phrase <laughs> um, but hopefully the bees will be happy as well then so you know you're attracting more wildlife in and as i said before dragonflies are, are top predators of other insects so if you're attracting other wildlife into your garden butterflies bees flies anything like that that's providing food for the dragonflies as well so you're covering all bases really um, and then don't forget to plant up around the pond as well. So when amphibians and things like that are coming out of the pond and um, they've got a nice little bit of cover and then also dragonflies and damselflies will love to shelter in it as well. Um, so that kind of that hopefully covers most bases. People like Frog Life have got fantastic information on building wildlife ponds with amphibians in mind. So I would say read as many resources out as you can as there's so much free information on the internet. And wildlife garden project um i know you've done a few videos with them oh, yeah they, they've got some fantastic resources as well so yeah just just read as much as you can um, and design it with as many species in mind as possible i know with with my pond i mean i'm when in my new house I've just, i'm going to do a, i've got a four meter by four meter liner so i'm going to try and do a, a much bigger pond than what i've got at the minute but i've read up that dragonflies prefer slightly bigger ponds i think they don't like tiny ponds i guess that yeah was they won't, i don't know yeah i think they will use a bit bigger pond um i think they just need a bit of a bigger space um but I, i'm not sure exactly why i haven't read exactly why they won't use a smaller one it could just be the surface area or the oxygen levels are lower in smaller ponds if they're shallower something as simple as that or there's not enough prey like you say for the yeah. I guess if you think about it, I mean, I, I I don't know how many eggs dragonflies have, but I'm guessing it's it's a hell of a lot. So if you've if you've got hundreds of dragonfly larvae, then they're going to need a lot of prey, aren't they? So I guess a, yeah. a bigger pond. They're no, quite voracious, aren't they? they dragonflies. They are. Yeah. If you go <laughs> and you leave it in the tray with other stuff too long, then you're just going to have one very fat dragonfly larvae, aren't you? <laughs> Eventually. Yeah. 
and the other plant I find really good for dragonflies is yellow flag iris because like you say they, they um, create nectar but also when the dragonflies emerge the nymph climbs up that I mean they'll climb up anything but that's a particularly good plant because they'll hang on and then uh, emerge out of it so that that's another yeah um something uh rory mckenzie dodds who is our dragonfly champion um i first got in really interested in dragonflies as an adult um by going to one of his courses when i worked for the rspb in scotland and i would say it's his fault that i got interested in dragonflies i blame it on him <laughs> he, he was just singing the praises of soggy logs like just put wood into ponds because uh, species like Southern Hawker um, absolutely love to lay their eggs and things like that. Um, and then things like to perch on them as well. So, yeah, they're really good. And, and make sure you put a dragonfly perch in. That's a really good top tip. If you can put a little log or just stick a, a branch into the, the ground near the pond so it just juts out over it. A bit like a, a kingfisher perch that you see people putting in at nature reserves, but in miniature. Um, that's fantastic for dragonflies and they might just come and bask in the sun over your pond or use it to hunt from so that's a, a nice little top tip that's yeah you know, it's not expensive just grab a stick from somewhere and, and pop it in and they'll be really happy no i i tend to get logs from my river because obviously you want to be careful introducing fresh wood because that can have lots of tannins and things like that that might not be great yeah. but if you get a log out of your river that's already washed through um I, I've, I've got a couple of those jutting out of my pond and I guess as well, they heat up quickly. So if, you know, dragonflies like to bask. So going on that, they'll, they'll warm up. I've just thought of a follow-up question. So I know I said that was the last one, but that's obviously <laughs> a lie now. But what, what species of dragonflies tend to colonise ponds first? And I suppose it, it probably depends where you live in the country, but are there any species that are known to kind of colonise garden ponds quickly? I know damselflies... Oh, I've got to remember now, is it large red or small red? They're quite quick, aren't they? Yeah, large red are, are very widespread across the whole country. Um, and they're one of the very first to emerge each spring, usually. Um, the first records we get are nearly always the large red, unless it's a strange spring and others are emerging first. Um, so they, they will come to garden ponds, um, but not always. Um, I've heard of broad body chasers being quite reliable. Uh, obviously, they're not across the whole country, um, not in Scotland so much, uh, but they do like ponds. And the Butterfly Brothers, Joel Ashton, um, he was telling us in a talk he did at one of our events that nearly always broad body chasers would come and investigate a pond they put into their clients' gardens. Like the first one within kind of an hour or so of them completing it. Oh, um, wow. so and broad body chasers are one of the first, but emperors are, are known to be colonist species and they will check out new ponds to come and lay their eggs in. Uh, my friend who lives in York, who put a, not a huge pond in, only about sort of a metre and a half long, um, she put that pond in last winter and by the summer she had an emperor laying eggs in there and sent me a photo saying, there's this big dragonfly, what, what's this one? It's, I think it's laid eggs or something. And I was like, you've got an emperor, that's amazing. <laughs> and so they, they definitely do come and check out new ponds. Um, so I'd say broad body chaser and emperor, sort of depending where you are in the country, they're, they're the ones to, to look out for that will probably come in first. Well, that's great. I can't wait to dig my pond, my new pond now and, and wait for the first dragonflies to come. I'm expecting, you know, at, at least uh, half, half the species in the UK would be, would be nice. A good variety. buzzing. Yeah. Up there, be, be... I'm still waiting for them to find mine. They obviously don't appreciate that you're working for them. I know. <laughs> I think they're boycotting it on purpose. <laughs> no, playing hard to get. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you, Fiona. Oh, you too. Thank you for having me on. That was Fiona McKenna of the British Dragonfly Society. I have to admit, you know, when you really stare at a dragonfly, there's something almost mechanical about them. And they are just incredible creatures. I mean, normally they're zipping around, so you don't get a, a good look. But if you do get a chance to really study a dragonfly, maybe look at a picture of them, they are just an incredible looking creature. Now this brings me on to Nature Reserve of the Week and seeing as Fiona is a proud yellow belly I thought I'd better do a Lincolnshire Nature Reserve and one of the best known ones is Wisby Nature Park. It's a network of lakes surrounded by grassland, marsh, scrub and willow car. Elements of the original quarry landscape remain with fragments of heathland, old hedgerows and a small oak woodland. So it's a myriad of habitats there for various creatures. In the spring and summer, flocks of tits and finches are joined by warblers. The lakes attract feeding sand martins and swallows, and terns nest on the islands. Chiffchaffs, along with reed and sedge warblers, can be heard. And Wisby Nature Park has also become synonymous with nightingales, a nationally rare species. It's also a great place to see and hear bitterns. And in the autumn, it brings the first sight of winter birds, such as goldcrest, red poles and grey wagtails. In the winter, the water levels are at their highest, and wildfowl are numerous. The cold weather also brings with it huge murmurations of starlings in their thousands, swarming and twisting across the misty lakes. It's a phenomenal sight if you ever get the chance. There are various hides dotted around the nature reserve and there's also one with some bird feeders right next to the car park which could be pretty good for photography. It has a large visitor centre with exhibitions of fully stocked calf, toilets and gifts and it also has an indoor and an outdoor play area for children along with a large car park. So it's a phenomenal place. Lincolnshire Wildlife Trust, I don't think they own it outright but they have input on the on the centre. But it's an amazing place if you ever get a chance to visit if you're in Lincoln. Well worth a visit. This has been the Bearded Tit Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will catch you in the next one. Cheers.